Fig Tree Ministries is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our ongoing operations rely entirely upon the generous donations from our supporters. If you've been impacted by our faith lessons, we ask that you would consider including Fig Tree Ministries as part of your annual giving plan. Secure giving is easy through the donate page at our website, figtreeteaching.com. We've also included a link below in the description section of this video. With your support, Fig Tree Ministries can expand our reach into the world, helping others just like you deepen their understanding of the Bible and connecting these principles to the transformative power of individual spiritual growth. All of this is so that we as a community can positively impact the kingdom of God in the world today. So may God richly bless you and all of your study. You know, one of the things that I've always tried to do, this is what we're going to do today, but I thought, well, maybe I'll explain what I'm trying to do each week, is we want to take all of these Bible lessons as best as we can, what's in the text, and put it back into that original first century setting to say what, were, what would be some common thinking that as the people either hear that letter or read that letter, they would say, aha, I know what Paul's talking about. There's something there. Now, from that, we can say, okay, you know, when Christianity went, came on the scene, it was exploding and people's lives were changing. So we want to say, what, what would be the message in the first century that caused that explosion? And if we hear it today, how does that affect our own spiritual growth journey? So that's a little bit of where I want to go each week. And today is going to be another one of those things. And what makes it difficult is... It's always tough to know they don't always write down systematically every single thing that people thought about in the first century. That's tough. This is what Scott biblical studies does is go back and try to figure out how people viewed things. You know, when Paul writes his letter or John, he doesn't explain anything. He just writes it down, assuming that the audience will understand what he's saying. So today will be one of those things, and it's going to be but the title of it is what I would call the heavenly man. So let me share my screen here. So the heavenly man comes from a verse in 1 Corinthians that we'll get at the very end of the lesson today. And I'm going to build up to see if we can figure out what exactly is Paul referring to when he says the heavenly man. So the first thing I'd like to do is real quick review. Over the past five, six weeks, there's been an emphasis on something about a king. We started with the birth of a king. That's the Christmas narrative, or the birth narrative of Jesus. As the, the Magi who show up to King Herod say, where is the one born king of the Jews? So it tells you that Jesus is seen as a king. Now, what do we do with that? Then we talked about the next, or a couple weeks later, we talked about Meister Eckhart. Now, Meister Eckhart, a 13th century mystic, and his idea was God is always birthing his son in our soul. So the word soul in Greek is psyche, and in Latin it's anima, and it's feminine. So his idea was, you're always giving birth to the Son in a spiritual or metaphorical 
way. So we can apply that birth to our own lives. And then we said, well, if we're a little Christ or a little king, what does it mean to be king? And that's what we did last week. So if you said to yourself, I just became a Christian, now what do I do next? Well, we have to have a, we have to have a structure for you to see how your spiritual growth path, what are you aiming towards as you're growing spiritually? And one of the ideas is to be like a king or like the king, but in a little sense, not the, in God's salvation sense. So that, that was review, and now we're going to add to it. We're going to add to it with this idea of the heavenly man. Okay, so on your screen, I always try to find a picture that's going to help us to understand something about the discussion, right? So it's this background that kind of says, here's what we're looking at, right? So this is from a church, San Giovanni in Villa Bolonzo, Italy. Now, I haven't been there. I searched on the internet and found a picture that I liked, and this is a great one. It's a small church in northern Italy. So what we see, this fresco, is, of course, Jesus. Now, he's on his throne. That's just like the one I showed you last week. That was uh, another church fresco where it's Jesus on the throne as the king. So Jesus is in his majesty on the throne. Now, what I want to show you is he's, notice he's inside of a little oval-shaped thing. And that little oval-shaped thing is called a mandorla. Mandorla, by the way, is Italian for almond. So the, but in, in early Christian artwork, they would place the heavenly figure in a mandorla. Now, what does that mean? What's the significance of a mandorla? So, a mandorla is like, it's the intersection of two circles. So if you took a circle and laid it this direction, and then took another circle from the top and laid it in this direction, you get that intersection of two circles. And a circle, being a perfect image, is, represents something about perfection, and it's intersectional. So you find these mandorlas on all kinds of Christian iconography. So, for instance, if we turn this thing sideways, there's Jesus seated upright now, and it represents two spheres of the world coming together. They're spiritual, so the spiritual sphere, the heavenly man, and the physical sphere. And that's the incarnation story. Jesus was in heaven spiritually, and then incarnated into a physical space, and it creates something of perfection, and that's, now he's Christ on the, on the throne. So this is what a mandorla represents. I just want to show you that as we're looking at this picture, you're looking into something mystical. So it's a, it's a combination of spiritual and physical, and that is the, that's the incarnation. So let me go back to this. I'll flip the picture back on its side. But if you notice what you're looking at on that painting, that fresco, is an image of the heavens. So you can see it's got a blue background with stars, so that little red circle just showing some stars. We notice that there's angels surrounding, so there's heavenly bodies surrounding Jesus. You've got angels kind of supporting each side of that uh, mandorla. You've got some 
heavenly creatures. And when we get to uh, Ezekiel today, Ezekiel 1, he sees these heavenly creatures. So there's something up in the heavens that's mysterious. You have angels, you have these heavenly creatures. And then imagine that mandorla right here as like a window into the mystical. So if we could ourselves peer into the mystical, into God's heavens, what we would see is a king sitting on the throne. And that's, that's pretty amazing. This is where we're going to go today. Now, what do they call that king sitting on a throne? So, first of all, remember, it's mystical. You can't describe it perfectly. There's always going to be some ambiguity. But what do they call that, that king sitting on a throne? Well, it's referred to as the heavenly man. And that's not just from our Bible. It's from Judaism, at least, well, pri- well Old Testament first, then prior to the, the birth of Jesus, the idea is around in the first century. And then we'll sh- I'll show you today, Paul and John are both picking up on it. And, of course, going to apply that to Jesus. So, this is our topic today, the heavenly man. Now, if you go looking for deeper into this heavenly man, and man, by the way, Adam in Hebrew, is you have to go into the area of Jewish mysticism. And this is where people get a little nervous because you say, well, wait a minute, that's not Christian. But these ideas are encapsulated in the first century. They're there. Our New Testament doesn't describe them as much as we would like. But what we're going to see today is is an intersection. There's Jewish mysticism, mystical meaning you're looking into the heavens. John's going to pick up on it. And then Paul is definitely going to pick up on it. Now, if you wanted to read more, there's a good place to start for this, is there's an article in the Jewish Encyclopedia, and I gave you, a, uh, I put the, the website link is footnoted on your handout. On page one, there's a footnote to the Jewish Encyclopedia, and it's always interesting for people when they go to, like, the Jewish Encyclopedia and read about Paul. Because you think, well, wait a minute, why are they telling us about Paul? Well, they're describing all the people who have ever thought about this heavenly man, including many early Christian sects. So that's a good place to start if you want to get more information about it. Okay, I gave you, on your handout, I gave you a picture. And the picture that's on the handout, it, it comes from a Jewish publication. But this picture right here, is within Jewish mysticism how they envision, now they're, they're anthropomorphizing the heavens, right? So we're, you're adding man-like fig, uh, features to the heavens. But this is how, within mystical Judaism, they view the universe. That when God created the universe, he created the universe as a representational man. So this represents the cosmos. It's, we can't go too in-depth into it, but if you read more about it, it's really actually quite interesting the way they think about it. But I want you to notice, what kind of man is it? If you look at this man, we notice something. He's got a crown on his head, and then at his feet is what's called the kingdom. So what kind of man are we looking at in this heavenly man? Well, it's a king. That's what we've been talking about for the past five weeks. 
So there's, they envision, I'll show you in a minute, this is not part of creation, but it's, it's how God created the, the world was through this figure in the heavens called the king. And we would say, that's Jesus. That's the son. It's the son of the, the uh, God, the son. And that's exactly what's happening is we look at it from two different lenses. Jewish mysticism says one thing. Christianity says another. But we're looking at the same thing. And what you get, basically, in the first century, as the thinking is being involved, is you get the seeds of the Trinity, what will eventually become the Trinity. So let me show you. I put God's creation, but there's a first century writer who emphasizes he's not created like the material world. It's through him that all things are created. So it's a little bit different, and that's... Okay, so it's not God's creation, technically. But this is called Adam Kadman. So if you go looking, if you want to Google it, Google Adam Kadman, you'll find all these websites about it. I, link, I put some of the footnotes on your sheet. And what that means is original man. Or, as people will call it, heavenly man. So we're getting there. Adam, so when God created Adam, first, Adam just means man or humanity. Later, we give him a name. Your name is Adam, Adam. And Adam just means man. So God created Adam. Then it turns into a formalized name. So if you want to go look into this, this is what, where you'd want to search. And the idea is, if the pinnacle of God's creation is humanity, well then, and we reflect something about God's creation, well then God's creation must look like a heavenly man. and. Hence, you get this diagram. So, okay, let me tell you some things about this. And this is on your sheet. So number three on your sheet, if you're following along, I'm going to give you a whole list of things that were said about this heavenly man. The hard part is it's not put in like one, you know, we Westerners, we wish the Bible was written like a textbook with definitions and examples, and, you know, nine out of ten professors believe this, and, you know, but that's not how the Bible's written. You know, it's very much encapsulated in its, in its cultural context. So what you find in the first century is this is rather ambiguous, but you get descriptions, you get descriptions of this heavenly man. And let me give you a few. First of all, it's pre-existing, it's eternal meaning he's outside of the actual creation. Creation itself, so he's not part of creation, creation was through this heavenly man. And oh, by the way, the heavenly man, like the universe, holds all things together. Now, the moment you see all things were created through him and he holds all things together, your spidey senses should be tingling. Because that's what Paul says in Colossians. We'll read that later. But these are what Jewish writing would say about the Pharisees said that through this heavenly man, all things were created. Of course, Paul was trained as a Pharisee, so he's just following along with his training. So, a pre existent king, not part of creation itself, but who all things were created. Those are the first few notes. Let me go on because it gets better. In, he was there in the beginning with God at God's side. 
during creation. What you see, that little diagram, is actually the way that they describe the diagram is it's the full manifestation of all of God's attributes. If God in human form showed up, this is what it would look like. That's the pre-existent eternal man. They also note he's pure light. So when you get the first few sentences of Genesis is this the pre-existing eternal man, he's pure light. And then finally in the first century, and I'll show you the writer that talks about it, is they call him, they refer to this heavenly man as the word, or in Greek, it's logos. And logos is the creative force through which everything is created. John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word, the Logos, was with God, and the Word, the Logos, was God. Does that sound familiar? Now, the Word, this heavenly man being called the Word, or Logos, comes from a Jewish writing in the first century. And what it looks like we have is Paul and John are correcting this Jewish writer named Philo. This is pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing stuff, because they're look, what we're, both Jews and Christians are looking into heaven, and they're seeing the same thing. But we don't, as it flows out into our theology, come to the same conclusions, of course. So I want to pause for a second because I'm throwing at you a brand new idea. And I just want to make sure if, you, if there's any questions at this point, I want to give you an opportunity. If, I, if you miss something or you want me to re-explain something, just you can hit your um, space bar if anyone has a question. All these ideas pre-exist Jesus, and I'll show you where they get them from the Old Testament, so that by the time Paul and John are writing, they're now pulling from these cultural ideas. And then what I would say, or if you read the article about the Adam Kadman, is that Paul is correcting a Jewish writer from the first century. So what I want to introduce next, we haven't really talked about this gentleman is a guy by the name of Philo. People refer to him as Philo of Alexandria, and that's Alexandria, Egypt. So this is obviously not a drawing from the, from the first century, but this is an artist's rendering of Philo. So Philo from Alexandria, Egypt, he lived, he was born 20 years before Jesus was born, 20 BC, approximately and died approximately 50 AD. That means he's contemporary with Jesus, and with Paul, and with John. And he was a prolific writer. You can, his writings are they're dense, and he's intermingling a lot of Judaism with Greek philosophy, but he would be well-known within that Alexandrian Jewish community. And those ideas would be floating around the Mediterranean. So. In his writings, he's talking about this pre-existent being, and he calls him the heavenly man. Same words that Paul's going to use, Greek words. He also, this is where we, we know it's, it is in the first century, he's the one who refers to that, that heavenly man as the logos, the word. Now, I'll give you another article that you could read that talks about not only do you get the Greek idea of the word, being a part of the Godhead, but you get a 
Aramaic. So when they translated, they took the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, there's an emphasis on the Word of God. And I'll, I'll send you that article. If you're interested, you can read that. Okay, so that's, so Philo of Alexandria. So in the first century, we know there's this idea of the heavenly man. Now, where do they get that from? They're not just making it up. And so this is where we have to go now to the text to take a look at where does this heavenly man come from? And I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. So turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Let me again say, if anyone has a question, if you want me to repeat something or you miss something, let me know. Just hit your space bar or unmute. But Ezekiel chapter 1 is a mystical vision. Now, if you look at verse 1 of Ezekiel 1, Now, I'm not going to read all the part. He gives, he's, he's trying to date where he, when his vision happened. In the 30th year, the fourth month, on the fifth day, I was among the exiles. So he's exiled somewhere around 600 BC. But look at the very last part of verse 1. It says, The heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. So what's going to come next is a mystical vision. The moment you see the heavens, were opened, and visions of God, you know we're not in Kansas anymore. So what is about to follow is going to be a mystical idea, which is always a mystery, which means we can't quite, we can't grab it firmly. When we try to grab hold of a mystery and turn it into dogma, it slips through our fingers, and we end up fractured and divided. So whenever we come up to a mystery, you have to treat it as a mystery. Hold it loosely. And one of the things about Ezekiel 1 is the rabbis would never teach Ezekiel 1 until you were mature enough to handle it. And I think this class is mature enough to handle Ezekiel 1. But the rabbis were always worried about it because it's a difficult thing to teach. Okay, so Ezekiel 1, there's a vision of God. Now, if you read through the whole thing, there's all these spinning wheels and there's these creatures with faces and you can read through that. But then he gets to the part that I want to get to, and that's verse 26. So if you look down, Ezekiel 1, verse 26, he's, look, he's looking up into the heavens. The way that the heavens are described in the Old Testament as like a series of vaults or open spaces or spheres sometimes. How do you count those spheres? Well, the rabbis say, how many times does God say, let there be, in Genesis chapter 1, ten times. So you say, aha, there must be ten spheres to this world. And each one is a higher vault, a higher heaven. And some of those have angels, and some of them have weird creatures. And So he says this, above the vault, that's the vault, so he's looking through the heavens, and he sees this vault over their heads, and what he means are the creatures, so just like in the picture that's the painting behind you, you have these creatures and the angels, and Jesus is above them in a way. So above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne. Now notice, he's trying to put what he's seeing in human terms, which is going to be, it's going to have limitations. So it looked like a throne, 
and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. Ha! So what kind of person sits on a throne that is like a man? What would we call that? What title? Well, we would say it's a king. Ah, there's a king somewhere up in the highest of heavens. So this is where the whole thing starts. Because it, in Daniel, you have a vision of the throne room. In Isaiah, you have a vision of, a thro- of the throne room. So there must be something there. Revelation is a vision of the throne room. Okay, so there's, he sees something like a man. Now look at verse 27. Because the way that they describe this pre-existent Adam, this first Adam, or, or the heavenly Adam, is that it's pure light, right? So now Ezekiel's going to try to describe what he's seeing. I saw from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as full of fire. And then from there down, he looked like fire. Brilliant light surrounded him. How do you describe seeing this being of light? Right? Maybe you could say it's the light of the world that's up there. It's pure light as God's creating. How do you describe that? Well, it looks like fire. It looks like glowing metal. You know, Ezekiel's trying to give everybody a picture of what he's seeing. Then the next verse is, where, is the critical verse. So if we go to the verse 28, it starts out, he's still describing it's the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. There was a radiance around him. And then this last little part of verse 28 is going to explain what he's seeing. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. It's the manifestation of God that he's looking at up up in the heavens, and it appears like a king. He's saying this, what I just described to you, is the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. Now we have to deal with that word likeness in a minute. Because we're reading it in English, and we don't, if we were reading it in Hebrew, we would, we'd have a better sense of what's going on. But it's the likeness of the glory of God. Here's an artist's rendering of the Ezekiel picture. Now, if you notice, just like that mandorla where, where Jesus is sitting up in the heavens, you have the same thing. You have like an opening that looks into the transcendent, the upper heavens, and full of light, and something that looks like a king on a throne. So here's what's really cool, because we can connect this verse with the thing that's up in the heavens that looks like a king with God creating human beings, okay? And it's that one word, likeness. So if you go back to Ezekiel 1.28, it says, this was the appearance of the likeness. Now in Hebrew, demut is the word. Now, we don't need to know that, but if we did, if we were reading this in Hebrew, and, they, and we saw that word demuth, our brain would automatically go to the very first time we ever saw that word in Hebrew, which is in Genesis chapter 1. So the likeness that Ezekiel's seeing is also shows up in Genesis 1.26, and I'm just going to read this. Don't turn there because we don't have time. But this is, you all know this, this verse from Genesis 1.26. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So in, in the, the study of the Hebrew Bible, the rabbis say, if you see those two words being used, look at the comparison and say, that, and say aha. 
human beings were created in the likeness of the same thing as that's up in the, that Ezekiel saw in the heavens. And notice, first of all, who the heck is the us? Let us make mankind in our image. And that's the one, you know, Christians are always pointing to that, the plural. Let us make man. Well, who's the us? It's the heavenly man who all things are created through. So, this is so cool, because you, what you have is you have the heavenly man, the Adam, the, the, the pre-existent man up in the heavens. It's pure light. And it is the likeness of the glory of God that we're seeing up in the heavens. And then when the earthly man was created, he was created not only in the likeness of God, but in the likeness of the heavenly man. And this is where Paul, as he goes, as we go through our New Testament, when we talk about becoming Christ-like, it's because we're also made in his likeness, in his image. It's very powerful. The problem is today, we, again, we, what, what happens is that as the, the Trinity developed over the course of the first few hundred years of Christianity, the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's not exactly like the mystical doctrine that I'm talking about, so there can be some confusion in that. Okay, so this is pretty cool. We have a heavenly man that's the image of the, of, of the invisible God, and then the earthly man, Adam, is created in that image. All right, so again, I just want to say, if anybody has any questions, let me just pause here for a second. Anything you missed or you want me to repeat, just go ahead and hit your space bar. Feel free, because I know, as I said, we, we are going to do this. I, there's, there's way too much to show you, so we're going to repeat this next week, and that's always helpful, because you could go back through this week and read some articles if you wanted, but you can digest this idea. And when we go back to it next week, it's like watching a movie the second or third time. You see things you didn't see the first time. So we'll do that again next week. But please let me know if you have any questions about this. But let me show you how this intersects with John and Paul, because this is really cool. So we go back to first century. How did people view this idea of the heavenly man? Well, there must have been, because Ezekiel is, they've been studying Ezekiel for 500 years. You have some intertestamental writings like Enoch, which talk about the same thing, a heavenly man. Then you get Philo of Alexandria, who's connecting the heavenly man, the pre-existent man, with the word logos, the word. So that must have been something common, because he's not trying to explain it. He just uses it like, it's, like everybody knows what he's talking about. And so now what I want you to do is turn to John chapter 1. Because now we're going to read John chapter 1 in a whole new light, or at least the first five verses of John. Now you guys are so familiar with this verse, but now let's think of it in the idea of that pre-existent heavenly man. So it starts out, I mean, these are such famous lines. In the beginning was the word, Logos. And the word, Logos, was with God. That's what they say about the heavenly man. And the word was God. It's the full manifestation of God. Paul says later, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's exactly right. That's exactly what the mystics say, that this Adam Kadman is the, is the full manifestation of the invisible God. 
Verse 2, he was with God in the beginning. That's exactly right. Before creation. Verse 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. That's exactly right. In him was life, and that life was the light, light of all mankind. So, I'm, again, one of the articles I'm going to send you is talking about how John is taking this idea that Philo writes about, and he's going to say, no, 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 Philo. Or, well, I'll, I'll explain it in a minute, but he's going to say, he's going to take this very common idea about the word, and he's going to put it into his little prologue of the, his gospel. It's not, the, the, pe- the people would know that. They would know something about the word. The article also connects it to the Aramaic. So when you read that, he focuses a lot on the Aramaic. And then verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, if I, if I remember correctly, when we did the Meister Eckhart class, that's what was written on the doorway of his church in Germany. So John is right in that first century idea of this heavenly man. So if we go back to this image, we would say, according to Philo and John, that this image that we see, the spiritual image way up in the heavens, is the word, the logos, John's going to say, but that's Jesus. It's Jesus of Nazareth. So as Philo talks word and John talks word, and in Aramaic they talk word, it's as if there's something right next to God that was creating there at the beginning. And we would say, yeah, that's called the Trinity. We get it. Now, let's turn one with with Paul, because I want to show you one example with Paul. Turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. It's going to sound very similar to what John just wrote. So again, there must be common ideas floating around that we're just not aware of the cultural ideas. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God. That's exactly right. Firstborn over all creation. Now, we notice when we got to the, when the, as the early church was debating the Trinity, one of the ideas is the whole begotten, was, was, was Jesus created or was he, and in the Jewish mystical side say, it's not really, it's not a creation. There's something different about this. And that's part of the, the Trinity argument that's happening in the, in the fourth century. So the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, for in him all things were created in heaven, for in him all things were created. Yep. Things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. Again, if you read that article from the Jewish Encyclopedia, Lewis Ginsburg, who wrote it, he mentions that it was a the belief with amongst the Pharisees that the whole creation was created through this heavenly man. And since Paul was a Pharisee trained under Gamaliel, Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5, he's simply explaining through that idea that that heavenly man is Jesus and all things have been created through him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Here's the idea. The incarnation of Jesus is exactly 
this heavenly man. If we think about the incarnation of Jesus, if we want to depict it, it would look something like this. You have the earth is one of one aspect of God's creation. The heavenly man, who, th- who all things were created, exists in the upper vaults of, of, of the heavens. And then that king descends to the earth to become co-joined with the material world in, in the form of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Philo, the Greek philosopher, or the, the Jewish philosopher Philo, he says that this heavenly man is not of the essence that a regular human is. It's, he's, he doesn't have a corruptible essence. He's sinless. So as the heavenly man descends into being a human being, he's sinless in the world. And then if we go back to the picture that we talked about, that I'm, my background picture, that's this. This is a picture of incarnation. It's the spiritual world joining the physical world in the perfection of a circle that creates this king that now sits up in the heavenly realms. So we know that that's the incarnation. The other thing that's really cool, within Jewish thought, within the mystical thought, as God was creating the world, he creates models. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. God created a model. You have the heavenly man becomes a model then for the creation of the world and for the creation of your own soul. So a human soul is modeled after this soul that's, or this, this being that's up in the heavens, the heavenly man. So we can think about it like this. You have the heavenly man, then you have all these people who exist on earth, and your soul, it's like a representation of the heavenly man, comes down and is, everybody's soul reflects that. And that's what we've been talking about. As you grow to be Christ-like, it's your spiritual growth, your spiritual side. Obviously, we all look different physically. We reflect the physical Adam in that aspect, but we also reflect the spiritual man, the heavenly man, which is the Christ, the king. So it's very powerful. What I think is cool about this is that the idea is this helps me think about my own soul and the development of the soul, the spiritual growth of the soul, is that I'm trying to become Christ-like, this heavenly king. And if, if we could determine some of the aspects, which we'll talk about in the next few weeks, how Paul is drawing out these aspects, then now you know what your model, what your goal is to grow like. Okay, last. Now, this is the, this is the kicker right here, because the whole this whole study today is based off of something that Paul writes in, to the, in his letter to the Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15, and it's 45 to 49. And hopefully, if I've done my job correctly this morning, this will now take on new meaning. You'll see it in a different light. So 1 Corinthians 15. 45 to 47, verse 45 starts out like this. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. Now, the way Paul, the way he's going to explain this is, he's saying the first man that we saw that appeared here on earth is the first Adam, the living being. The second or last Adam is what Jesus was. Even though he's, you know, Paul says, look, he was created, he's before creation. 
existed. But he's saying, what did we see here on earth? Well, the first man came, and then the the last Adam, the life-giving spirit, showed up. Verse 46 says, the spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. Verse 47, the first man was of the dust of the earth. That's almost exactly how Philo describes it. So Paul looks like he's engaging with that common idea. And then he says, the second man is of heaven. Verse 48, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. So notice Paul is saying, look, there's two aspects to humanity. There's the earthly man. You reflect something from the earthly Adam, but you also reflect something from the heavenly Adam. There's two aspects of humanity. And then it says, and here's the kicker. This is the kicker, the whole thing. Verse 49, and just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that Adam, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. And that's where he's getting, using the same language that Philo uses to talk about this heavenly man. So we bear both images. And when Paul talks about, and of course, our spiritual image is of the heavenly man, which is what Paul wants us to develop, to grow to be Christ-like. And if we go back to our little diagram, we would say this, there's the heavenly man. We then have two aspects. We bear the image of the earthly person, and oh, by the way, we bear the image of our soul is exactly like that of the heavenly man and everybody on earth. So remember last week when we were, I was talking about part of the message of Christmas and Jesus born at that lowest rung of society for all humanity is that all humanity is born with a soul that is built in the same model as the heavenly man, and all people have the ability. They, in the ancient world, they thought that, no, 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 only the king, only the king is in the image of God. And Christianity says, no, that's wrong. Everybody's in the image of God. Every human being. What's the image of God? Well, it's the manifestation of Jesus here on earth. And then he ascended back up into the heavens and now sits at the right hand of God as he did from, all, from, all, from the beginning of eternity. So everybody has the, the ability to develop their spiritual side and grow to be like the king. So if we go back to our image, we would say, aha, this isn't the logos, because this is what Paul and John are correcting. They're saying, hey, f- oh, let me, I, I forgot one point. Philo said the heavenly man is an idea. Now it's the idea in a platonic sense in Greek philosophy. And Paul and John both show up and say, no, no, no. That heavenly man, that's Jesus of Nazareth in person. He's the Christ. He's the king. He descended. He was incarnated here on earth. He then died, was resurrected, and now he ascended back up to sit at the right hand of the Father in the heavens. That's the king that we're talking about. It's the Christ. So they're actually putting the personality of Jesus of Nazareth with that thing called the Word or called the Heavenly Man or whatever you want to call it. One of the things that I'll show you in the next couple weeks is we'll take a little bit closer look at this diagram right here. Now, remember, it's a Jewish mystical diagram. 
but I'll show you how Paul, his language is engaging the same ideas. And, you know, when you start to hear the same ideas over and over and over in two different places, you know, you'd think, well, they must have something in common, right? So we notice a couple things. There's a crown up here at the top, right? And of course, that says Jesus is the king. There's something, wisdom is the highest piece. I'll show you how Paul engages this. You have wisdom as one point. You have something, understanding, discernment is another point. Knowledge will be one we'll look at. Then what's cool is the way they think about this is all human beings, they want human beings balanced just like God is balanced. And on this hand, the right hand is mercy. And on the left hand is justice. And, you know, they say God rules the world with two hands, mercy and justice. And they have to be balanced. And that's what part of our spiritual growth walk is to balance mercy and justice. It's very interesting, but you'll see how Paul starts to engage that. I want to show you next week, too. There's a couple things in John. All right, so that's it. Let me, let me wrap this up. So we'll come back to it next week. There's a few things I want to show you. Something from John that's pretty cool, how he's engaging this. We obviously saw he engaged it in his prologue. There's also a really cool archaeological find uh, from the city of Magdala called the Magdala Stone. I'll show you that. Plus some more quotes from Paul. And then next week, it'll be a good chance for us to review this whole idea of the heavenly man. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there was a book called From Infinity to Man. It was the, the book the, the gentleman is writing. He's trying to, he's taking the Jewish mysticism and quantum physics, and he's putting them together. If you read that book, you'll read all about the heavenly man, because he's describing the Jewish mysticism. Okay, God willing, that made uh, some sense. And like I said, if there's any questions over the week, please let me know. We'll come back to this next week. And we'll do it again. 